I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. Welcome. I said welcome. Welcome. I said welcome back. Um, welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name's Aaron Alexander. Today's beautiful episode was with one of the most intelligent human beings on planet Earth, Dr. John Demartini. Um, Dr. Demartini is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development second time we've had him back on this program and that's essentially what we get into is human behavior and personal development from a neurological perspective we get into gliology and all sorts of fancy concepts that are really interesting and helpful for our lives thank you so much for tuning in the website alignpodcast.com a-l-i-g-n podcast.com on there you can start the five day movement challenge breaks down five simple fundamental movements self-care practices that everybody absolutely needs in their daily existence it's on the front homepage of alignpodcast.com thank you to the people that have started the align method online program it's amazing seeing people actually getting it and hearing reviews and people digging it um, you can find that at alignpodcast.com slash align method or you can go to instagram line podcast and just go into the bio and you'll see all the links and stuff there Woo, boo, boo. Um, final thing, thank you to Four Sigmatic for supporting this podcast. Uh, Four Sigmatic is a really exceptional company serving up medicinal mushrooms of all sorts and putting them into little convenient packages that you can take and create teas and cocos and beverages for yourself. Um, really great stuff. Everything from cordyceps to lion's mane to reishi or reishi. I'm not exactly sure how to say that. Um, awesome. I use the reishi and or reishi every night before I go to bed. I use a cordyceps before working out and um, it's good. It's amazing coffee substitute if you are into that kind of thing. So you can go to foursigmatic.com slash align, F-O-U-R, sigmatic, S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash align and get yourself 20% off <coughs> your purchase. I think we're good. I hope you guys devour this conversation. Once again, thank you so much for folks checking out the Align Method Online program, unwinding those unsightly patterns of forward head posture and rolled forward shoulders and all the crap that happens from staring deeply in the abyss of technology. All right, here we go. Back to the shizzy with Dr. John Demartini. Align Podcast. All right, I'm in. I'm locked in. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you in general. appreciate you making the time to make this stuff happen. Thank you. Um, last time we let off, I think we were talking about gliology and how the brain builds itself and kind of revamps its directions of growth. And I was thinking about um, <coughs> the whole value system and, and the value of that for us to kind of like create ease in the development of our, our, our brain, our body. Um, is there, are you looking, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with like the neuroscience and neurobiology around value systems and actual, the development of the brain. Is that something that you look into? Yep. What's that look like? Is that like a, well, we have, uh, in our pulvinar nuclei, 
of the thalamus that is, according to some neuroscientists, a seat of filtering and gating of information from our sensory perceptions. And it, what it does is it filters out the infinite possible stimuli that can come in down to those that are more um, pertinent to what we value most. So our hierarchy of values, the set of priorities we live by, is selectively biasing information that's able to get to the cortex to be conscious. And it's gating out information that may be superfluous and unnecessary and, and distractive. And it's assisting us in maximizing what is most valuable to us. So our, our values uh, determine how we perceive, help us decide, and help us act according to priority. Mm. And uh, so our brain, uh, as a feedback mechanism with our uh, glial cells, will myelinate anything that assists us in fulfilling what's valuable to us, most valuable, our highest priorities, and um, will cause neurogenesis and stimulate, um, you might say, repair mechanisms and everything else to maximize brain function. So anytime we're fulfilling what we value most, we maximize our brain. And anytime we perceive in our environment things that do not fulfill our highest values, um, our brain will create an apoptosis and a removal of neurons um, to make sure that we're not utilizing glucose and oxygen inefficiently uh, on unnecessary information that's not fulfilling what's meaningful. So our brain is a neuroplastically remodulating, remodeling um, uh, structure that's constantly trying to maximize the potential of fulfillment of our what we value most in life. So our hierarchy of values impacts our brain function without a question. How often do you see people that really, uh, their values line up with what they really want to create or think they want to create? Well, many people are comparing themselves to other people instead of comparing their daily actions to their own dreams. And many people are not even aware of what their life is demonstrating most to be most important. And they're subordinating to influence on the outside, injecting the values of other people that they admire and attempt to be somebody they're not. And they, they pursue things that aren't truly as meaningful as they imagine. And they beat themselves up when they're not consistently focused on it because they're preoccupied by what is truly valuable to them, even though they don't really know what it is consciously. Mm-hmm. So anytime, if I ask people, for instance, how many of you want to be financially independent in an audience? I may have thousands of people in an audience. I ask, how many of you want to be financially independent? Everybody's hand goes up. They think that's what they want. But what their life demonstrates, because their their life is demonstrating their values, um, their values show that they want immediate gratifying consumer items that depreciate in value instead of buying assets that they can save and invest that actually appreciate in value. So what they say they want, I want to be financially independent, and what their life demonstrates that they want are two separate things. And that's just an example in finance, but that occurs in relationships and business and every area of life. So most people think they know themselves, but they don't really know themselves. They don't really, they they don't have the courage to look honestly at what their life demonstrates. And they're comparing their life to fantasies that they think they should be doing and ought to be doing according to the outside influence, instead of looking inward to what their life is actually demonstrating that's important. 
So finding out what's really important to you and setting goals that are congruent with that maximizes brain function. But subordinating to the outer world and attempting to be somebody you're not and having the frustrations and the negative feedback system that's trying to let you know that you're off track and symptomatology um, is what most people live with. They, they live with a symptomatology of self-depreciation and frustration because they keep pursuing something that's not truly what's valuable in their life. And then what's value, the things that are highest on our value, we spontaneously inspire to do. Right. And finding out what that is, is very crucial. And in, the, in the, my signature program, The Breakthrough Experience, one of my primary objectives there is to help people find what that is. So they don't have to be motivated on the outside. They can be inspired from within intrinsically. Do you think there's value in modeling the outside world, finding a hero or someone to kind of look up to and model in that way? Yes and no. Um, to extract, I mean, if we look at biology and we look at the evolutionary biology of the human being, there's no doubt that the socialization process of moving from the nomadic environment where we started to go to agriculture and we started to work uh, around people, larger numbers of people, we would r realize that different people had different specialties. And when we wanted to, to excel at a particular specialty, to m model somebody or to imitate them or do things would be more efficient than doing trial and error. The challenge, though, is that if we attempt to be them instead of do the actions that they've done, we confuse the two and we try to be second uh, at being other people instead of being first who we are. So Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. We're not here to envy people and imitate them. We're here to learn the action steps that have efficiently achieved, they've, they've used to achieve and incorporate some of the action steps without trying to be those people. Hmm. So there's a difference between modeling somebody and trying to be those people and modeling some of their behaviors and incorporating them into a, I might say, an integrated format of who you really are. Yeah. Has there been anybody in your past that you've intentionally modeled? Well, I can't say that I've tried to be anybody but me. I don't have anybody. I don't have a desire to be anybody but me. Yeah. But I certainly have learned and gleaned insights from thousands of people in reading and also observing and on YouTube, bits and pieces of communication and language and ideas and maybe formats and structures of business management um, by doing that. But I have no desire to be them. I have a desire to learn through foresight and mentorship information that I can use to be me. Hmm. Are you familiar with Roger Sperry? Yes. No Nobel Prize winning neurologist. Yes, he did, he did uh, lateralization of the brain research, yeah. left yeah. and right brain hemisphere. Yeah, so he was really big on, on movement of the body and specifically movement of the spine being a main distributor of nutrients and information for brain function. And then vice versa, the other direction where the brain, he said, I think 80% of the function of the body is, is um, that's the 80% the of the role of the brain is, is movement of the body. And so there's like this, this, this connection between the way that we move and the way that we think and vice versa. Is there any kind of like ways to speak into the brain via a movement perspective? Well, there was a gentleman book by Milner and Gwitsky called Understanding the, the Dynamics of Human Movement many years ago. And it talked about um, how as you move the body, um, those behaviors of movement are associated with certain states of mind. And so if we do, if we're uh, very excited, our body language usually shows it. It doesn't show us bent over and hunched down and clumped forward. It shows us our hands are externally rotated and up and our heads are up and extended. It shows a body language. 
So anytime we are attempting to reach a state of mind, we can maneuver our body in such a way that gives it credence mm. and to assist us in achieving that state. Now, the downside of that is that no state is sustainable. If you try to um, do it, uh, hedonic adaptation will automatically neutralize it over time. But for a burst of, of activity, we can achieve states of mind by doing movements. Um, and those are associated, if we, anything we can associate, uh, we could, well, let me rephrase that. We could associate anything with anything. I could change those and make you associate new movements with different pr pr uh, states of mind. But generally speaking, there are some standard states of, of body movement that go with certain states of mind that we could, we could utilize to our advantage. Yeah. I was listening to, um, uh, what is the book? Not when the body says no, the, ah, I'm going to have to come back and put it in the show notes what it is, but it was getting into, um, how when there's trauma in the brain, there'd be almost like a dysregulation around that, that part. So if you have trauma in your, in your life, that will potentially kind of like freeze or shut down isn't the right language, but kind of dysregulate a certain area of the brain. Are you familiar with any, any things of this nature? Well, any time that you have a perception, see, trauma is, is a perception. You could have an event occur. If, if I took your hand right here, okay, and I put it down on a, on a table, and I told you that um, I took a hammer and I just slammed your thumb, mm. uh, and I didn't give you any meaning behind it or any purpose behind it or any benefit from doing it, you would go, wow, hey, and you'd be probably reacting angry, and you'd say, I'm traumatized by this guy that just hit me with a hammer. Yeah. But if I told you that the, the 12 supermodels on the planet are going to be given to you for a one-month period with a billion dollars cash to go on any trip and do anything you want for a month, and I slammed it, and that's you got a billion cash and you got 12 supermodels, um, you would say, put the thumb there, and, and you'd invite yourself to go put your thumb there, right. and it wouldn't be perceived as trauma perceived as an opportunity. Mm. So trauma is not trauma until somebody chooses to make it trauma. It can be turned into an opportunity too. So it's the associations you make with things that determine the brain's function. If you see that as something that's helping you get what you want, your executive center comes online and it for, the forebrain comes and it uses it to your advantage. If you don't see it and you see it pointless and meaningless, um, your amygdala comes online and you want to avoid and seek. And so you then run this subconsciously stored uh, trauma in your mind and run the story. Right. So it's not about what happens to you. It's how you perceive it and how you associate things with it that turn it into an opportunity. Every weekend in the Breakthrough Experience program that I've done, which I've done 1,045 times now, I, I basically go and, and take people that think they've been through traumatic experiences, something subjectively or objectively that they think they've had, and I show them how to ask a new set of questions and turn it into an opportunity that they're grateful for. So it has nothing to do with what happened. It has everything to do with how they responded to it and how they perceived it. Mm -hmm. We have control over our perceptions, decisions, and actions. If we change our perception, it impacts our decisions and changes our actions. So I always say trauma is a choice. Um, and some people say, well, what if a person shoots your child or runs over a thing? Okay, that's no doubt that those are objective events that occurred in life. But how we, what we decide to do with them and how we perceive them is going to determine what they're going to impact our life. Yeah. Bessel van der Kalk, The Body Keeps the Score. That was the book that I was, I was spacing on. Um, are you familiar with that guy? He's great. Well, the thing is, the, the score, we don't want to, I would differ on that in the sense okay. that the score is solid and set. Hmm. Because, uh, again, I can take, 
I've had people have gone through almost every imaginable thing that, that you could think of as trauma, and I've turned it around and made it into opportunity for people. So the score is what you decide to perceive out of it. It's not because of the event. Uh, as long as you separate cause from effect, you're, you're trapped. But once you understand that your, your perceptions can change even past events into opportunities, then you realize it's all fuel to somebody who asks the right question. And anytime you're not seeing both sides of an event and only seeing one side, you've narrowed it down and locked it into a subconsciously stored so-called ecstasy or trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So how does one start to take command of the filter that they perceive the world through? Well, they first identify what their values are and then they ask whatever has happened in my life. How's it helping me fulfill what's most meaningful to me? That's an amazing question. Um, I, I had a, a gentleman the other day that was when he, he's, he's from South Africa, but he um, moved to Israel when he was a young boy. And he grew up in the, in the Israel there, and they have some military action that was going on between that and the Palestinians. He got involved in the militia there and had to drive tanks. Well, at one point, his commander told him that he had to drive over anybody that was in the way of their pursuit. And it just so happened that a family, literally a mother and children, got in the way, and he literally ran over the mother and the children. And so he was traumatized by that and got out of the tank immediately and walked away. He could not handle the idea that he just literally smashed a family. Mm. He was traumatized by that in his mind, he thought. So in the process of doing that, he, um, he then left. He got kind of court-martialed by the things, left the country, went back to another country, and then spent his life doing what he can to try to compensate for that because he felt guilty that he'd done that. Okay, he associated that with trauma and pain and, and, and et cetera. But he went on to um, go on and be a leader for the Palestinians of, the, of OPSI. So he went completely from an Israel side to a Palestinian side and felt that he owed them something and went out of his way for the next oh, 50 years, almost 47 years, he basically spent his life trying to compensate for that. So I had the opportunity to sit with him recently and ask him, uh, so your leadership role today, the number of books that you've published, the people that you've met, all the things that you've done, all the lives that you've saved, which are thousands of lives, can you see that that event that you experienced has actually helped you become a leader and helped save lives by the thousands? He goes, yes. I said, this is a moral dilemma then. Uh, you did this one act, but at the same time you did things that you would never have done if you hadn't have done that act. So is that an act of a, a good, evil, neither, both? How is that perceived? And, and he, we stacked up the benefits that came out of that event. And, and all of a sudden, the, the sacrifice of the life for the sake of saving lives. And all of a sudden, his perception of that entire event changed. And the guilt and the shame that he'd carried for 47 years um, shifted and had tears of gratitude for being in the position of having to experience both of those polarities in his life. And so I always say that it's not what happens to it, it's how we decide to perceive it. So he changed his perception after 47 years of that same event and realized that now his life became of that and he honored and thanked the family. And, and he, instead of being guilty, he then realized that I have an account, accountability to go out and make a continuous difference on the, on the peace efforts between those two nations now as a result of it. And he's one big, big significant leader there. Yeah. So. Is that a, 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 a terrible event, a terrific event? Is it neither? Is it, this is a moral dilemma that nobody can actually answer with absolute certainty. They can only narrow it down with a, um, a narrowed mind into good or bad out of it. So it's not the perception, it's not the action, it's the perception of the action that makes the difference in the person. Mm.
That's why William James, the father of modern psychology, said that the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. Yeah, I have that written down. Um, so it seems like purpose, even if it's the illusion of purpose, is like a mainstay in health. You know, well, if you don't have some meaning uh, and, and some direction and intentionality that you have in your life, uh, you're, you're easily swayed by the outer influences of opportunists and other people that project their values onto you, that scatters you. So having a clarity of some sort of mission or purpose definitely in, enables people to have more fulfillment, meaning, and achievement. Yeah. It feels to me as though almost like that, that, that purpose or your values being in alignment, it's almost like that's like the boat that carries all of the Taibo and the yoga and the eating organic food and the drinking good water and all the other things. Like if you, if you don't have that container that's kind of holding the vessel or that is the vessel, then everything else just, it almost is like, it doesn't exist. Like see, it's like, that's what drives everything. It well, feels. the ancient Greeks said that there's an, the, the highest value is the telos, the end in mind and all other sub values are means to an end. Other writers have called it, one is the non-derivative value that's intrinsic, that's calling, that we feel that we have, our life revolves around. And the other are derivative values that are expressions of achievement towards that end. So yeah, like my case, it's teaching. I, I research, I write, I travel for the sake of teaching. Yeah. And um, that's the thing that's most meaning and fulfilling in my life. What if you didn't have teaching? Well, I would probably end up teaching in another format. <laughs> If I love teaching, I would just teach something. I'd teach something. I was down in Antarctica. I was down in Antarctica, and there was about uh, five million penguins along this one uh, stretch of beach. And they were just, just as far as you could see penguins by the thousands. So I just walked up and down them, and it was like a black tie affair to me. Um, I just started teaching them, and, and it was quite interesting. I just started speaking to them just to see what they would do. And, and I had to yell a bit because they were making a lot of quacking noise. Mm. And... Um, but I, I, I thought, okay, well, I, I wanted to teach on that continent and, um, and Antarctica. So that was the way I, I had to do my seminar to live penguins. <laughs> mm. do you, how do you maintain the sensation of feeling at home or feeling like, like balance when you're literally traveling like all the time, right? Yeah. You're not not traveling. There's not like you're so, Full time. so essentially that in your home really you're sometimes when you ask like somebody at Burning Man or something like that, like, where are you from? They're like earth. I'm like, shut up. But you're like, your home really is full circle. Yeah. I, I started, I read a, a writings by um, Einstein when I was 18. And one of the things he said was, and I'm paraphrasing that I'm not a man of my family. I'm not a man of my community. I'm not a man of my city. I'm not a man of my state. I'm not a man of my nation. I'm a citizen of the world. Mm. And then Epictetus wrote about um, Socrates that I'm not a man of Corinth. I'm not a man of Athens. I'm a citizen of the, the universe. And that always kind of struck me and always meant something to me. And I've said since I was probably 20 or maybe sooner that um, that I, the universe is my playground, the world is my home, every country's a room in the house, and every city's a platform to share my heart and soul. And that's been my, my I guess you could say, my motto for all these years, for 40-something years, 44 years now. And I literally live on a ship called the world that circumnavigates the world, been living on there for 17 years. And if I'm not on there, I'm traveling around the world, living in hotels, teaching. So when I'm on the ship, I'm teaching and traveling. And when I'm off the ship, I'm teaching and traveling. And it's, you know, some people who don't have that as their highest value 
would probably think that's a bit uh, uh, neurotic or strange, but I really don't care. I just, this is what I love doing, and I structured my life to do it. If you're not structuring your life in a way that you're fulfilled, you missed out on the magnificence of life. Hmm. So I, that's my life. That's how I do it. So yeah. I, I travel from city to city. You're familiar, with, I'm sure, with, with um, children that feel like they have safe home environments growing up. They'll feel more well adapted to go and explore and go into like the playground and hang out with kids and socialize. But if they feel unsafe at home, then all of a sudden there's like this shortened leash and they feel kind of stuck. I wonder if there's, I don't think I described that correctly exactly, but I wonder if there's some type of, um, if you feel at home in like your school, then in your state, and then your country, and then eventually in your world, is there, I wonder if there's some type of like hierarchy of comfort in the world. Slash well, I, I think that's a wounded child syndrome by psychologists personally. Because I, I studied, um, you know, Sir Isaac Newton had no father. He was, when his father, when he was born, his father died. And his mother had to leave in order to gain sustenance from, she had to depend on some man to take care of her. So she had to literally leave her son with somebody else for a while. Um, so Sir Isaac Newton, who became one of the most powerful men in history, greatest minds wrote Principia and some of the work that he did on metaphysical studies and esoteric studies. Uh, here's a man that grew up in an environment that wasn't safe, that wasn't uh, the typical. So it's not, I don't want to, just because there's some statistics that show that certain kids that don't have that, that's how a lot of them end up, doesn't mean that's how they have to end up. Sometimes they end up going to psychologists and the psychologists have a block and box about how it's supposed to be and then they put them in that box and say, well, that's the reason why you have what you have. Hmm. I take people and I, I ask people, you know, uh, so when, whatever you thought was missing, who took on that role and changed that paradigm? I was speaking in Krugersdorp prison in South Africa, which is a maximum security prison, three stories underground, for people who have 25 year to life sentences. Whoa. There's a thousand of them in one room when I spoke. And um, I had three, uh, I had the warden and a, a commissioner there and an Al Jazeera television crew and six guards surrounding me as I walked into the sea of orange uniforms, the toughest people in South Africa. And I uh, walked in there and as I was speaking, um, I was quite inspired to see that no matter where they've been, what they've been through, where they've come from, whatever, these individuals still want to make a difference in the world. And even though they're going to be in prison the rest of their life, many of them, uh, they still want to make a difference even in the prison. And finally, this young, this young guy who probably 40s or so uh, yelled out at me and said, well, that's different for you. You, you, uh, you had a mother and a father and you had a this and that. And he was trying to blame and be the victim in there. Right. And I was not supposed to get out of this circle because I was surrounded by these guards, but I just walked right over to him spontaneously. I wasn't thinking. And I said, listen, no matter what you think is missing in life, it's not missing. It's in another form. If you didn't think you have a mother, somebody else played the role of a mother. Didn't think you had a father, somebody else played the role of the father. Find out who it is. Find out the advantages of them in your life and the disadvantages if your own parents had remained there. And change your perception of it. And so you're not angry and victim of this environment that you think you are, a zeitgeist of misperception. Look at it in a way that it's used to your advantage. You can be grateful and you can do something with your life and not be a victim of history. You can be a master of destiny. And he was sitting there just puzzling that as I was speaking. He was looking at who is his mother and father along that way. And he was getting some of it. And all of a sudden, way over probably 70, 80 people away in a crowd, a guy who'd been in prison 26 years started crying. He started really, really just letting it out. And he was respected because he'd been there so long. And so the people kind of looked at him and he was, here he is, this, this very tough guy that was in a gang, it starts to cry. And I walked right over between the people over to him. 
And the guards were concerned, and the warden was very concerned. I'm walking right in there, and I've lost the, the guards as we went in. I just walked over there. I didn't feel threatened by it. I, didn't, I felt that these people are just authentic at this moment. And I walked over to him, and all of a sudden he says, I know who my mama is. I know who my mama is. And he pointed to the warden. He says, warden, you my mama. Well, you my mama. If it wasn't for you, I'd be dead. I would have been shot. I would have been overdosed. You're my mama. You have been my mama for 26 years. And he just started bursting out and reaching to his warden for his mother. So he thought all those years that there was something missing. But I always say at the essence of the soul, the, the, there's nothing missing. At the, the existence of the senses, there's things that are appearing to be missing because we are not seeing things with broad enough perspective. And our narrow-mindedness makes us subjectively biased and miss with our perceptions the magnificence that are actually in our life. And so I'm not a believer that it's about what happens to you as much as what you decide to do with it and how you perceive it. So I'm really uh, inspired to have people who think they've been through these traumatic experiences and losses and things of this nature. And I go in there and ask them new sets of questions to make them realize that this is on the way, not in the way. And then they can be grateful for it and they can move on and use that to a great advantage to make a difference in the world. So if not, they become, again, victims of their history, not masters of their destiny. So I'm a firm believer that it's not necessarily just what's going on. I mean, I watched a boy who was basically uh, 14 years old, had nine brothers and sisters. His mother and father both died of AIDS in South Africa. And he came up to me at a talk and he said that I had inspired him to save money. And he was making 60 cents a day stacking bricks at 14 years old and walking 45 minutes to and from work every day. And he's decided to save 15 cents a day, the equivalent. Now, this is in ranch, so you got to multiply it times a higher number. But this is in U.S. equivalents. And he saved 15 cents a day. And at the end of three months, he saved $7.50. And he was working towards saving $200, uh, probably $20 by the following Christmas to be able to put $20 down on a $200 new shack to live in for his family, for his brothers and sisters, nine of them. He was the oldest. He was 14. So imagine you're 14 years old raising nine brothers and sisters under the age of 14 wow. with, and having to work full time. And he had to hire a woman for 15 cents a day to manage those kids with the little education they had in order to educate the kids to give them an opportunity. And he took this as an opportunity to go do something amazing with his life. And he went on, on into, I was there when he bought the house, the shack that had electricity and water and uh, water nearby anyway. And I watched him and he said that I've now saved $37. I'm going to save an additional amount of money. I'm going to pay off the shack. I don't want to do this. I'm going to inspire other young people that are in my same situation to do something amazing with their life. So I've seen people that sit there and wallow in their stuff and they want to blame things. And they're basically saying that they're a byproduct of their society. And I've seen other people take that same situation and turn to an opportunity and be grateful for those, those initial events. Like the guy that basically uh, had to run over the family with a tank. He's now a leader in the, in the industry, and, and, and he chose to turn it into an opportunity. Hmm. Have you, what, what time do you got to be out here? I want to be conscientious of that. It's 10, 10, 20. All right, cool. So I, I wonder with um, trauma, I was listening yesterday to like the different composition of tears, and they're all, there's, there's three different classifications and the one called, I think like psychological or something tears. That's not what it's called, but something like that. When you, when you're sad, the yeah, composition the, of that, it's actually ends different. up having, yeah, they actually, well, they actually end up having, um, like, uh, a hormone that acts as an analgesic or a painkiller. Yeah. 
And we can actually, a similar thing, since there's all sorts of different studies showing that, that we get this release of endorphins through certain trauma. And then, so what the, the connection is like trauma could potentially be addictive. Yeah. Well, we, no one will continue to do something unless they perceive more advantage and disadvantage out of doing it. So when people keep doing things that seem to be, quote, sabotaging, it's actually an unconscious strategy in order to get things that they want. Some people will cry and run. I'll use an example of a little boy that comes, he gets a boo-boo in the street, falls over and scratches himself. He runs three blocks, he's not crying. He gets in front of the front door and the mommy opens the door and he starts crying. And then mommy goes out and takes him and gets him some ice cream and takes him to the store and buys him a toy. And he gets an association, a behavioral association that says, if I boo-boo, get my boo-boo and get my scrape and get my symptoms, um, I get a lot of attention. I get what I want. Mm -hmm. So some people use that as a strategy to get what they want. They use crying because sometimes people will cry. They found out that when people cry, um, they will, they, the person who's bullying them or attacking them tends to stop the attack. So that can be a strategy on not uh, at avoiding challenges and criticisms from people. They'll do the crying mechanism. So you have to look at whether the crying is sad or if it's crying as a strategy or if it's crying as inspirational because each of them have different chemistries and tears. Hmm. How does movement impact emotions in the sense that there's, a, there's a, I apologize for all these study stuff, but I just find them so interesting and I think it's like relates to your stuff. Um, the, uh, what is it, what is it called? Um, imposed helplessness, prepared helplessness. Uh, you're going to know what this is in a second. So they had dogs and they shocked the dogs and uh, the ones that give the opportunity in the beginning to get off the shock, they go. And then the ones that end up not having an escape out, if they're shocked long enough, eventually when, they were, when they're given an escape, they don't, they don't do anything. They, almost, they kind of feel like they're stuck in that helplessness. Yeah. Do you, have you, are you familiar with this? Yeah. And the only way to get them off of the thing is to actually, this is where like the movement part comes and it's kind of interesting, is to manually move them off the pattern. Off of the pattern. Well, I think the old elephant and the, the, the stake, they start with an elephant that's uh, chained or roped to a stake, but they can't move, they can't get away. Yeah. After a while, even though that stake is just a little stick in the ground, with a little string on it, their brain says, if this is around my leg, I can't move. And all they have to do is lift their leg up and the stake comes right up with it. But their brain says that I can't do it because it's pulling on their leg. So it's a, it's a learned behavior. It's a conditioned reflex. Yeah, learned helplessness. Learned, learned helplessness. behavior, yeah. yeah. So, if, but, but again, that's because of advantage over disadvantage. We perceive more advantage over disadvantage by playing that role. Right. And if we continue to do that, then people will use that as strategies. I, I rarely, you know, people come to me and they say, well, what about having compassion for people? Well, compassion is one wounded person buying into the wounds of another person. And if the person that's got wounded initially goes and finds out how the, whatever happened to them served them, and now they see so many advantages, they're actually grateful for the event. That same person that was once compassionate to go and help that person now goes up to the person and says, let's find the blessings to it. Mm -hmm. Instead of buying into the sympathy and getting into compassion, they go in there and ask him, so how did it serve you? And they hold him accountable to see that and bring him in touch with reason again. And when they do, they're, they're assertive to get them through that and help them use that to their advantage. So we sometimes have learned responses and because we've stacked associations that it's more negative than positive, then we have sympathy and wounds from it. And then we go and pass that down the line to other people. And then two people are sitting there wounded through time. We can also find out how it blessed our life and became grateful for it and go over there and then change that reaction and get them grateful for it, and move forward in life. Mm -hmm. So it all depends on our perceptions again. 
And the, the questions we ask awaken unconscious information that we're deleting in our first awareness that we feel that we're wounded by. And once we become conscious of the other side to it, we are now liberated by the freedom that we have because we're no longer seeing pain without pleasure. We're seeing both. Mm. I felt that myself of feeling like almost like fearful to leave the victim mentality because then it means that you need to step into a higher role of responsibility. You know, and so noticing, you know, people say like self-sabotage or whatever, it doesn't need to be that, but just kind of means of like staying within a shell because fear of, you know, that this shell is not going to kill you, even if it's abusive or victim, victimized or it's, you know, it's not going to kill you. Is there some, some kind of strategy or actionable tools or tips to kind of break that pattern? Yeah. I do it every weekend in the breakthrough experience with the Demartini method. The whole purpose of it. I have people that, uh, you know, they were, their their father beat them or whatever. They they come up with you know this this victim stuff, and I said, okay, so you've been running to your therapist and you've been running a story and you've been telling that and sharing that story and the therapist is saying, tell me more about the story and it just goes on and on and on for year after year. And I said a simple question: so when he beat you, how did it serve you? Right. And they look at me like, well, it didn't. And I go, no, it did. How did it serve you? And they go, well, I became more resilient. Great. And how did that serve you? Secondary gain, secondary benefit from that. Well, I became more entrepreneur and independent, so I didn't rely on men. Good. How'd that benefit you? Well, I actually run my own company today. Good. And how'd that benefit you? Well, I make my own rules. I'm not being told what to do. Good. And how'd that benefit you? Well, I ended up valuing myself and realized I don't want to have to rely on other people. And I became an entrepreneur and saved my money. And, and how that benefits you? Well, I, I ended up uh, attracting a very beautiful wife who's, who's uh, wants somebody that's secure and I'm, I'm independent and secure. And I go, good. And how that benefits you? Well, I'm a leader in my field today. I said, so that, how many minutes was that, that beating, uh, that, that, that so-called yelling at you oh, over a period of time, maybe 10 times over a 10 minute period. So it's a hundred minutes of craziness for achievement, resilience, adaptability and wealth and opportunity today like that. I said, that sounds like a good training program. sounds like a very efficient training program. How else did it benefit you right there in that spot? Well, I ended up having support people and I get built up my network of new people in my life. And how else did it benefit you? And I have them keep asking that question where's the other side of that equation? until they actually get a tear of gratitude. And they say, well, I wouldn't have it any other way. I said, so is that abuse or is that an experience that you chose to make abuse because you never asked the question, what were the upsides to it? Hmm. And, and they go, well, no, I never asked that. I said, because you just presumed with a narrowed mind and a moral instruction and an ideology about how life's supposed to be that's not necessarily true. And then you, you trapped yourself in that box instead of looking for the other side. And your unconscious mind is intuitively trying to be brought to the surface to see the side you've been ignoring, to try to liberate you from the bondage of the thing that you've, you portrayed as an abuse in your life. And you can turn that into an opportunity. It's totally up to you what you decide to do with it. I've, I've yet to see anything that the mortal body can experience the immortal soul can love. Is there any such instance of said trauma creating some type of like compensatory pattern that great. Now you're wealthy and you're a leader in your field, but you're still tormented inside. No, I've not seen one case so far that I haven't been able to turn into an opportunity. Not mm -hmm. one. All right. I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do on the weekend at the breakthrough experience <laughs> is to take people who've been through unimaginable things and turn them into opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had some amazing stuff from, I mean, amazing stuff in different parts of the world. Do you have low points in your day to day? 
I don't have highs or lows so much. I'm, I'm a pretty stable guy. I, uh, I've learned a long time ago that if I hold on to manic fantasies about how my life is supposed to be, life becomes very bipolar. Bipolar is a byproduct of monopolar addiction, the addiction to one-sidedness. I don't look for one-sidedness. If I came to you and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always up, you're never down, you're always positive, never negative, you're always peaceful, you're never wrathful, you're always generous, never stingy, you're always considerate, never inconsiderate. And I looked at you and said that to you, and I said, well, do you believe that? You'd go, no. You wouldn't be able to say absolutely one-sidedness because that's a subjective bias that's absolutisms that's not existing no human being is that way i said you're always mean you're, always, you're never nice you're always cruel you're never kind you're always negative you're never positive you're always wrathful never peaceful always can consider it never consider it always stingy never generous again you would if i asked you if you believe that and they go no i don't believe that but if I said sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, you would immediately go, yep. You're both, and you have certainty about that. Hmm. You can never have certainty about a monopolar state of mind. So pursuing a one-stated mind for yourself, for the society, or for any human being is delusional. And I crack those delusions in my breakthrough experience because people set up fantasies that they strive for and create nightmares in the process. The Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. Right. And we keep striving for that which is unobtainable, a one-sided polarized magnet, and try to get rid of the other side of the magnet in life, only to have futility and frustration and the real definitions of passion, which means to suffer. So the striving for that one-sided life is futile. So striving for a peace without a war or a conflict, a cooperation without a conflict or one-sided anything is futile. And people hold on to it. They, they get addicted in their dopamine amygdala range where they try to basically try to get a one-sided outcome in life only out of ignorance, only to frustrate themselves and bang their head against the wall looking for a, something that's not obtainable. And that's their suffering. So when somebody says, I'm abused, that's because they basically have a fantasy about how it's supposed to have been and it didn't match the fantasy. And this side of the equation came into their life to break the addiction to the fantasy. And if they ask what's the upside to it and what's the downside of the fantasy that they wish they had had and bring those back into equanimity and equilibrium, they all of a sudden have a moment of tears of grace and the chemistry of their eyes and tears show that they have now a, a resolution, if you will, an inspiration instead of a, a sorrow in their life because they keep running against a fantasy in their life. Mm. So I like helping people break through and actually do it. I've been doing it for 30 years and I've done it 1,045 times and thousands of people around the world and I've yet to see anything that a person can experience that can't be turned into thank you, I love you. Yeah. Um, we gotta wrap up. That all sounds, so as you're saying that, that you mentioned the Buddhist stuff, it, that all sounds very Buddhist to me. I'm sure it sounds like lots of other you know, dogmas of sorts. Is there any specific like religious dogma that's been beneficial to you over the years? Well, I've studied, I, I did a, wrote a book called The Tree of Life and I went through an encyclopedia of 3,000 different religions of 50,000 people up to 2 billion people in occults. And I was fascinated by what was the common threads and denominators there. Yeah. And religions, uh, you know, the, the very earliest phases of religious development start out sort of a geomorphic stage where they, you know, they're frightened about uh, nature and thunder and lightning and things of this nature, and they dissociate from those fears into fantasies for propitiation to the gods that would protect them from these things. And they go hide in caves, and they make stellas, and they make stone uh, sacred spots and everything else because of overcoming fear. Then they do it with plants because they don't know what to eat. And if they eat this, they could die. If they eat this, they could feel good or high. So they end up uh, making good and bad plants. And if they're around plants that are dangerous or whatever, they, they create gods over the 
plants. The same thing for animals, and these are the zoomorphic stages of religious development. Then finally, man is more frightening than anything. He, we, we conquer the ground, we conquer the plants, we conquer the animals, we learn how to use spears and things. And then eventually we realize that man is still the most frightening animal. So we create anthropomorphic deities and create gods in the images of man with all kind of emotional responses. And finally we transcend and we start to see astronomorphic gods, the sun, the moon, the planets, and things of this nature. And we personify them and we worship them because they seem to have more power than us as individual pieces on the planet, chess, paper, chess players. And eventually we transcend that and we get to a transcendent realization that, that it's our phobias that are creating these philic fantasies that we are making false gods to protect us because we're frightened about our fears in life. And eventually we realize that there's a higher order to things, a transcendent order that there's nothing to be frightened of, nothing to be seeking and nothing to be avoiding, but something to be grateful for. And we finally transcend that. So I'm not interested in uh, anthropomorphic religious uh, ideologies that people get stuck in, the dogmas, which are irrational. I'm interested in pursuing the intelligence, that uh, panpsychic intelligence that may be permeating on like an impersonal Upanishadic view that, that there's a, there is a universal intelligence that governs life and the laws of the universe are innate in our calling and we have a desire to do it. And science is an attempt to try to do it from a, a more modern construct. No Nobel Prize winner would pursue 60 years of pursuit of trying to find the, the laws that govern a particular function of the universe without believing that there was a rational order sitting in the universe. So the pursuit of a rational order in things and not an emotional protection of things, to me, transcends some of the intermittent stages of religious understanding and dogmas that we pass through on their levels of awakening. That was dramatically more beautiful of an answer than I was anticipating. <laughs> <laughs> How do people learn more about you and find your stuff and take the courses and the, and the, the quiz and all the, all the stuff? How do they... You know, people can find me online on just drdmartini.com. Um, that's the best thing I can say. I mean, I just, all I do is I research, write, I travel, I teach. I full-time do what I can to teach. I share with people around the world um, whatever my research findings are. I'm not necessarily the most uh, politically correct individual when I'm speaking. I'm just interested in what the research points to. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it points to a capacity of human beings to do extraordinary things when they give themselves permission to live authentically and integrally. And I think that there is a perennial wisdom in some religious, some mythological, some scientific, and some philosophical constructs uh, attempting to guide us in that direction. But there are various people with different levels of awareness have skewed that many times through the centuries. But deep inside, there's a yearning, intuitive and inspired yearning for us to do something extraordinary. And I do what I can to share the information that helps people fulfill that. But they can find me on my, my drtmartini.com. That's cool. the best place. Sweet. I'll include all the links and everything. There's, there's, that. there's, you could spend the rest of your life on my website. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's, that's there's, true, actually. there's about 8,500 different interviews on there and there's all the kinds of CDs and DVDs and books and Lord knows YouTube systems and cool podcasts and everything. Perfect. We'll add this one to, to the, to the barrel. Yes. Thanks man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Over and out recording. Over. Thank you all so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I am super excited to present to you guys the Align Method online program, which focuses on unwinding some of the deleterious effects of essentially staring into technology. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, and just general collapsy postural patterns. And also gets into a movement guide and how to integrate better movement into your life. Uh, so you can check that out at alignpodcast.com slash align method, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com slash 
align method or you can find it at the instagram page align podcast in the bio and also thank you to the folks that have grabbed the align band heavy duty resistance band with a door anchor and a free video guide that goes with it so you can actually just access the free video guide if you want uh, just to get resistance band exercise in general it's at alignband.com l-i-g-n band.com all right thanks guys so much for tuning in appreciate you enjoy the rest of your day Pow.